We're going to pray. Let's really concentrate. If you're like me, it's a moment to switch off when you, you know, go from one thing to the other. But just remind yourself, right, I'm going to concentrate and pray. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the great privilege of being here with so many other Christians to worship you and to learn from you. We thank you, Father, that we belong to a group that has been actively engaged in reaching men and women, young people and children with the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether on beaches or inland. Lord, we thank you. And not only in our country, but overseas as well. We bless you, dear God, for everything that has been accomplished during this past summer. We thank you that you are our God. You made us. You love us. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world to bear in his own body our sin and to rise from the dead. We thank you that the Holy Spirit has worked in our hearts and lives to make us yours. We thank you that you as a holy God have revealed yourself to us. And as we look in a few moments time at the scripture and consider its great importance, we pray that you would help Trevor as he speaks. But Lord, would you speak through him to us and beyond the sacred page, we seek thee, Lord. Bless us, do us good this morning, this day, this weekend, we pray. Meet with us, not just fellowship. Not just fun, we want those, Lord, but we do pray that you would speak to us. And for those of us who have loved ones in particular need of our prayers at this time, Lord, we commit them to you wherever they are and whatever they're doing. Lord, please be good to them and merciful to them and bless them, we pray. Father, we look to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. We have two readings today. The first reading is from 2 Timothy, chapter 3. And starting from verse 15. And that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work. The second reading is again 2 Timothy chapter 3 and from verse 15 and reading from the New Living Translation. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It strengthens us and straightens us out and teaches us to do what is right. It is God's way of preparing us in every way, fully equipped for every good thing God wants us to do. I hope you've got a copy of this book on your knee, lap or in your hand. It's the Holy Bible, and for centuries now, uh, whenever there's been a new king or a queen, they've been given the copy of this book. And then they've been told these words. We present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords, 
Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Now, such were the beliefs of the leaders in our land who formulated those words years ago. Uh, we may live, some were talking about, dispensing with the monarchy, and if that doesn't happen, I'm quite sure they'll redraft those words if they don't eliminate them altogether. But one thing will remain, and that is the truth of that statement. These are the lively oracles of God. And that's one of the places where we stand, we are a Bible-believing people. Now, a lot of people hate the Bible. Uh, Satan, for a start, hates the Bible. He hates the Bible because it's done so much good. In the words of Abraham Lincoln, he said he believed that the Bible was the best gift God has ever given to man because all the good from the saviour of the world, is communicated to us through this book. So certainly the devil hates it. And then many others hate it. Ungodly people hate it. They hate it because it's opposed to evil and wickedness and all ungodliness, which of course may condemn their own lifestyle. Uh, through the years, they've tried to ban it. In some countries, they've burnt it. I suppose in our country, more than anything, they belittle it. And uh, some are even trying to have it uh, exiled or condemned as hate literature. But can we say together, please, this is not hate literature. This is love literature. God's love for us and love for mankind. And many Bible believers were motivated not by hate, but by love. Lord Shaftesbury fought for improved conditions for working people. He was a Bible-believing Christian. And then you could mention William Wilberforce, who fought to abolish slavery. Elizabeth Fry reformed prisons. Florence Nightingale improved hospitals. It wasn't hate which motivated these people. It was love. Love drove William Booth to found the Salvation Army. Henri Durant to found the Red Cross. George Williams to found the YMCA. And the Mild May Mission Hospital, wonderful Christian hospital in London, became the first hospice for AIDS people years ago. They weren't motivated by hate. They were motivated by love. And by this book, and by the Saviour, this book speaks about. It was not hate, but love, which sent William Carey to India, Hudson Taylor to China, David Livingston to Africa, James Chalmers to the South Seas, and so you could go on. And there they opposed infanticide, uh, if they didn't like the sex of the baby that was born, twin, murder, Cannibalism, widow burning, when the husband died, expected to throw herself alive on the burning pyre. Uh, it, it, they weren't motivated by hate. They were motivated by love. Love for this book and love for the Saviour about whom it speaks. And love, or should I say passion, for lost men and women 
whom the Saviour loved and wanted to bless and to save. So let's ask this question, what is this book we hold in our hands which is so hated by so many and yet equally so loved by so many that today another 500 of our brothers and sisters who love this book so much and love its message will not only be prepared to lay down their lives for it but will lay down their lives for it. 500 Christians on average a day are killed because of their faith in this book and the faith in the Saviour. So what is it? Well, it claims to be a special book from God. It claims that God inspired people to write words, some of which they didn't even understand themselves. Peter tells us the prophets, uh, having spoken or written something, sat back to work out what it was all about. Now that was the claim. Peter said, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Paul said, we had it in our reading, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Jesus said, scripture cannot be broken. And in his temptations in the wilderness with the devil, it is written, was the end of all argument. Thus says the Lord, or a similar phrase, comes so frequently in this Bible that on average it's between three and four times on every single page of the book that you have in your hand. Isaiah claimed, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Jeremiah wrote, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Ezekiel put it, he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the children of Israel, tell them, thus says the Lord. David cried, the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. And towards the end of the book of Revelation, John wrote, these are the true words of God. So it claims to be a miracle book from God. Now, what grounds are there for believing that claim? Other holy books in other religions might claim to be from God, but what evidence is there to support their claim? What evidence is there to support this claim, that this book is different? Oh, I thrill to this. I was converted by the Bedford YL just before I went to university and uh, praise the Lord for them, still going strong. May they be blessed. But uh, this is one of the arguments that convinced me what they were telling me was true and I took my stand with Bible-believing evangelicals and by the grace of God I've never changed it. He's kept me sensible. But... Uh, what is the one argument above all others, I think, that proves this book is a miraculous book from God, and more than that, proves that the man it speaks about, Jesus Christ, is no ordinary man. 
He's a different man above all others. What is the, the argument God uses? It's really magnificent. And uh, incidentally, in Isaiah 41, he flings down the challenge to false gods and false idols, and God says this, in effect, if you want to prove you are a genuine God and a genuine idol, there is a way to prove it. And uh, you can read the whole passage, but I'll just quote the end of the, the uh, whole paragraph. He finalizes his challenge in these words. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know you are God's. Show what's going to happen in the future. Prophesy. Come out with detailed forecasts. And as years unravel and history goes on, let every single one of those prophesied details of yours come true exactly. If you can do that, God said, that will prove you're a genuine God and a, a, and a true God, and not a false one and a false idol. But of course, no religion has ever done it. No religion has a book like this book. Because there is no other God or idol that can come out with prophecy having every single detail coming through as history unfolds. None can do it. But God has already done it in this book. I believe prophecy, or should I say not just prophecy, but fulfilled prophecy, is God's autograph through this book from beginning to end. You can detect he's on every page behind so many of these statements predicting the future. And may I say this, that in that argument, God killed, oh I shouldn't say, I'll better redraft, my mind's getting ahead of me. I was going to say God kills two birds with one stone. Well he's not in the, you understand what I mean. But he's getting across, uh, uh, God confirms two truths with one argument. By prophecy, or fulfilled prophecy, he has confirmed this is no ordinary book. There's no other book like it in the world. And because so many of its prophecies, I know some focus on cities and uh, nations and kings and events, but so many of its prophecies also focus on the birth, the life and the death of Jesus Christ. It proves that he, that man who came, was no ordinary man. No other person has had his biography written centuries, in major details, before he came. The book is different. And that man is different. And, and the fact that this book is different proves man on his own could never have achieved that. There must be a, a a something beyond man, superhuman. Uh, you're fighting for a word until you say the word God. If you take God out of the equation, you can't explain this book. If you put God into the equation, you can explain this book. 
So fulfilling prophecy also says there is a God. He is real. And the only real God is the God behind the Bible. And this Bible has come from him. And that man who came, came from God as well. Uh, we're doing rather better than killing two birds with one stone, aren't we? I think that must be three or four altogether. There is a God. And he is, it is the God of the Bible. And the Bible has come from God. And Jesus Christ has come from God. Think for a moment of some of those prophecies. On the day he came back from the dead, Jesus said to his disciples, These are the words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, concerning me. For those who don't know, your Bible is divided into two, Old Testament, New Testament. But the Jewish Bible, as I call it, was divided into three, and that was the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And you subdivide one kings, two kings, and a bit more like that. Their books became exactly the 39 books of our Old Testament. So in that verse, after he came back from the dead, Jesus is confirming the inspiration of all 39 books of our Old Testament. Now what were some of those prophecies in that book concerning Jesus? Well, first of all, it said that when he came he would be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And he was, because he was born a Jew. And then it said he would belong to the tribe of Judah, which he did. And later on it said he belonged to the family of Jesse, and he did. Uh, and then it said he'd be, be a descendant, one of the sons of David, and he was. And it said then he would be born in Bethlehem, that one there, Bethlehem of Pharsa, not the other Bethlehem in another place. And that happened as well. He would have a virgin mother. That came true. He would live and teach in the area of Nazareth. That also happened. Later on, he'd be despised, rejected and betrayed by a friend. All of which came true. The price would be 30 pieces of silver. That was correct as well. They'd both gamble, uh, toss up for his clothes and share them out, which seemed a contradiction in terms. But if you know that what happened, that also came true, both of them. It said they pierced his hands and feet. They did. It said he'd be associated with criminals in his death, and by the time they put dying thieves either side of him, that prophecy was fulfilled as well. Oh, you could go on and on and on. I have at home a little booklet, and it's called 30 Prophecies Fulfilled in a Day. It's talking about the day Jesus Christ died. You could have another uh, second version book, if you like. Many more prophecies fulfilled in his lifetime. But whether you consider the prophecies of his life uh, and his death, one thing is, is clear, that prophecy proves this Bible is different, and prophecy proves that man is different. And that's why some of us are so happy to call this the, the written word of God, 
and we call Jesus the living word of God. And both have come from God. Now, some of you who have followed so far say, well, might say, well, that's fair enough, Trevor. I do concede that uh, prophecy, I mean, this book isn't just an ordinary book. And uh, I, I read two, the two versions there said all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It didn't say uh, scripture includes inspiration. It didn't say every scripture inspired by God, implying that some aren't. No, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now you might say, well, prophecy proves that God is in this somewhere. It is a divine book, but after all, it was written by human people. Couldn't there sort of be a kind of divine authority and human, well, well-intentioned, but nevertheless error, uh, intermingled in the two? Well, that's a very interesting question, but if I said applied it, apply it not to the written word of God, but apply it to the living word of God, apply it to Jesus, you call him the son of God, which he was, and he was equally the son of man. Uh, he was fully God come to earth, but he was fully human. Are we going to say, well, because he was God, his teachings, of course, were divine, uh, but because he was human, there was kind of human error mixed in with it, so we don't know what's right and we don't know what's wrong. We're not going to say that at all. No, he came out with human words, which the people of his day and in that language fully understood. But though they were human words, they were without human error. Because he was equally divine. He was God. And we believe, I am fully convinced, that this is exactly the same. This book has what I call a human words written on paper. Fully human. But yet because God was behind it, equally divine. Every word of God in this book, can be trustworthy. Uh, this view of what we call verbal or word inspiration, the trustworthiness of each word, was the clear belief of prophets and apostles and Jesus who laid the foundation of our faith. Uh, take, for example, Old Testament, New Testament, I'll give you one quotation of each. David said, His word was upon my tongue. That was believed by Peter, who said the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David. Time again, uh, and again, Paul in his letters refers to the Old Testament and quotes as authoritative. In actual fact, in Galatians 3.16, easy to remember, one of those wonderful 3.16s, we know John 3.16, you can look up Galatians 3.16 later on. But he argues, not from a single word, but from a single letter. Or at least, it's a single letter in English. It might be a single squiggle in Greek. I can't, I'm not authoritative enough to tell you that. But in English, it is this. 
Paul said, he said not unto seeds, S-E-E-D-S, as of many, but unto thy seed, S-E-E-D. He argues from the singular instead of the plural. So he's putting his microscope, not on words, but actual letters. Jesus himself uh, did the same, arguing with the Sadducees, who did not believe in uh, the resurrection from the dead. When he turned to prove the resurrection from the dead, he said, haven't you read that God, by, when spoke to Moses by the burning and bush, and said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living. And in early days when I read that, I thought, that's not a very, pardon me, Lord, but I thought, that's not a very good argument for the resurrection from the dead. If I want to prove the resurrection from the dead, why, even I thought I could improve on the, the resurrection from the dead argument. But what was Jesus doing to Jewish religious leaders who should have believed their Jewish scriptures? He said this, May I put it this way? Jesus was implying when God spoke to Moses by the burning bush, he did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob years gone by. And I am now your God. No, 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 no. He said, I am still the God of Abraham. So in other words, that single little word or single little letter probably in the Hebrew, Jesus turned to, to validate his teaching on resurrection from the dead. All these were believers in scripture, down to the word, verbal inspiration. One of the pictures behind me is Martin Luther. Oh, well, that's the quiz. You work out which one it is. Now, Martin Luther summarized the view that so many of Christ's followers in subsequent history uh, believed when he said this, Not only the words which the Holy Spirit and Scriptures use are divine, but also the phrasing. And he was the one that said, Here I stand. He was a Bible believer. One of those persecuted, but not like the thousands since, who have been martyred for a similar faith. He died of what we'll loosely call uh, natural causes. Now, that was believed not only by Martin Luther and many before him, but by all the uh, 16th century reformers, 1500s, and then the 17th century Puritans, what I call the 18th century evangelists. And the 19th century was the century of all those faith missionary societies that went worldwide. And it was a, a strong belief in the divine authority, verbal inspiration of the Bible, which sent them at sacrifice into this world. 
And when we came into the 20th century, many, of course, adopted the same position. But that was the position United Beach Missions adopted halfway through the 20th century when we were first founded. And bless God, in the, the 21st century, we are not amongst those who have moved our ground. We still believe the Bible is the word of God and the final authority in all matters that I'm coming on to in a moment. But some might say, well, just a minute, Trevor, now. We had a reading from two versions. What about different versions? Uh, some of them differ. Well, I'll try and comment on that a little bit. But may I say this, let's get this firmly in our minds. Whatever translation... Uh, you love in your heart and has blessed you so much, please agree with this. No translation of man at the moment into any language, be it English or all the other thousands of languages which have received translations, and probably some of them have received two and three and four and ten and twenty different translations. We have such a proliferation. But no translation in any language can ever improve on the revelation God gave at the beginning. There we may have, we do have perfection, I firmly believe. But ever since we've been trying to uh, be fair, or many have been trying to be fair, to translation. Not all have been fair to translation. I mustn't get on a sidetrack because of time, but uh, there are New World translations that slip in little unwarranted A's into in the beginning was the word Jesus, and Jesus was God. No, Jesus was a God, they want to say. It's not there in the original. So some slipped them in. Some haven't believed in the virgin birth. And they won't have a virgin. Oh, no, no, no. Just a young woman to fit in with 21st century morality. Yes, some adopted them to fit in with their own views. But many have endeavoured to be honest, I believe. Now, what about other translations? Incidentally, you might like to know that the Jews had such a... Uh, reverence and high regard for scripture that when they hand wrote their copies there were no computers in those days when they hand wrote their copies do you know after they finished a paragraph or I'll call it a page they not only used to count the words they used to count every single letter to make sure that the number of letters on that page was exactly the same as the number of letters they copied. And each letter, when they wrote it, they used to say out loud to make sure that they got it right. And then in front of some words, holy words, uh, they would put aside their quill or their writing pen and they would take a new one to write it. And before the word, which they would never say, which we translate the Lord, God, God, uh, Jehovah, do you know they would go and have a complete bath? Doesn't matter how many times in the day they wrote that word. They would have a complete bath 
to come at it as cleanly as possible with a new pen and then letter by letter copy it. They used to count the very letters. One letter wrong on a page. And they would say that page is not worthy to be considered Holy Scripture. And it should have been binned. It probably wasn't. It might have been so cheaply. I say that because of another story in the Bible. But it should have been binned. That was the attitude of the Jews. What a high regard they had for being so careful on getting an exact, reliable translation. We've got to concede that our efforts to get a readable translation, commendable as some of those efforts might be, have sadly not been so conscientious about keeping it reliable. And uh, therein comes the fault. Now, I was converted, as I said, through the Bedford YL years ago, introduced to beach missions, and I think there was only one version known in our country uh, throughout, and that was the authorised version. So, for 20 years or more, I read every year, studied as best I could, the authorised version of the Scriptures. And may I say, I never found all the difficulty with it that people insisted was there, although probably those who insisted the difficulties were there didn't actually read it. That authorised version held our country in a good position for 300 plus years. Now, I'm not idolising it, but don't you just rubbish it as difficult. I studied Shakespeare at school. Well, my words, if you think the Bible's difficult, I tell you something, you've got something to learn. No, 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 what a wonderful book. However, uh, Kate and I realised there were difficulties when our boy, John, well, he was about seven, I think he was, seven or eight. And... Uh, well, he'd got a children's Bible, maybe with some coloured pictures in, but you see, he was growing up now, and he wanted to be a good Christian boy. In fact, he wanted to be like his Christian dad. He wanted a proper Bible. We apologise if this talk was cut short and not fully recorded.